Well, let me start by saying, I knew we were going to get here. And I want to give a shout out as we begin to our college students who no doubt uh, drove this question. Uh, They're all, all gone for the summer. And I know many of them, yeah. They're out of here, but they're going to be podcasting or listening online, so make sure we're recording that, uh, this for them. But I do love those guys and appreciate them. Uh, there's probably not a more uh, divisive issue, a more polarizing subject than the one we're about to tackle now. What's the big deal about homosexuality and gay marriage? We don't do this today because it's good for church growth or a warm way to welcome first-time guests. We do it, as I said earlier, because it's your number one question. I want to say to you, I want to say to everybody that this question is easy for you unless you have a friend or family member who's gay or lesbian. This question is only uh, easy for you if you yourself don't struggle with some sort of same-sex attraction and you have a fear maybe of being found out or kicked out or mocked or mistreated or marginalized. This subject is only easy for you if you haven't been invited to a gay or lesbian wedding. Uh, This subject is only easy for you if you haven't been uh, invited into a conversation. I grew up in the 70s in a small town, in a conservative town, and this subject matter, it did not intersect with my life in those years. I always thought that homosexuality was something that was out there. I learned later, in fact, not too many years ago, that one of my good friends that I grew up with had many years later uh, come out to be a gay man. And I thought about him and the struggles that he had keeping it a secret for, for so many years. There's a prayer that the psalmist prayed. He said, when I kept silent, I wasted away. To be fair, this is David praying after sin, after heterosexual sin. But what he said, I think, reveals to us the reality. You've used this expression before, a deep and dark secret. It's a popular phrase, and I think we undermine its importance. You see, David would say to us what is biblically true, what's experientially true for us all, that uh, the deep, dark secrets have a destructive energy force to them. And I think of my friend and others like him who stayed in the closet, who kept a secret from so many people for so long. I just thought this was something that was out there. And in my mid-20s, I moved to Miami and I learned it was out there. And from that time to this day, I have a few friends who are gay. I know them, I enjoy them, I love them. This is not something Fondren Church that's out there. It's something that affects us. And if we're knit together as a body of believers who are called to love in this world today, then I would go ahead and say that it affects all of us. Today, this subject matter is not just reflexive or reactionary. I think it's important to talk about this. It's important because there are many men and women who are wrestling with what the Word of God says about this. There are folks who really want to know what do the Scriptures say and does God mean that? Did He mean it then and does He mean it now? I think this is an important subject because there are teenagers who are struggling with their very own sex lives and sexual identity. 
there are also those among us who are wondering if Fondren Church could or should be their church home. And for some of you, the things that we've tackled prior to this, it's not that big a deal to you uh, to, you know, to think about uh, are we living in the end times or the existence of a powerful, loving God in the midst of tragedy and suffering or thinking about what about those who've never heard or the difference between Calvinism and Wesleyan Arminianism or baptism or anything like that. You wanna know if our church is loving to everybody. It's important, but as we, uh, as we get into this in a little bit deeper, I wanna share with you a few things that I think are most important. And can I tell you this morning that our chief message is not stop sexual sin. The chief message of the church is look, behold, the love the Father has lavished on all. That's the message of the church. I wanna share with you three things that I think are really important. The first is a central person. John chapter one tells us that God um, was, the word was with God, the word was God, and the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld the glory of the son who came from the father, who was full of grace and truth. Did you get that? Jesus, the central person, was full of grace and truth. In John chapter eight, we learn a story that's pretty famous, a story of a woman caught in adultery, a woman, a, a woman who the religious people brought out in the center of the room. When we've watched all of our kids grow up and when they would show off or do a dance or a song or quote something, Shakespeare or Chaunce or something, they would stand, we'd have them stand in the center of the room because we wanted to see them. We wanted them to be right there so we could say, everybody look, and they would beam and radiate because they were right in the center. But when it's your sin and that sin is sexual sin, who wants to be in the center of the room? And this woman was pulled into the center of the room and Jesus tells her, I, can, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. You see church, Jesus wasn't half grace and half truth. He wasn't, he, he wasn't a balance of both, he was a full, a, a full embodiment of each one. He was full of 100% truth and 100% grace. Do you see what Jesus did? He didn't water down sin, but he did not put conditions on grace. You with me? You have sinned. It is separating you from God. It is hurting you. It's not God's best intentions for you. But I do not condemn you. Honestly, for me, I know, and I'm guessing for you, that we reverse the order of Jesus. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Don't you think the goal of our lives is to do what Ephesians 5 1 says, be imitators of Jesus? But here's where Jesus really separates himself from us because most of us live our lives saying, hey, we get, the, we get it out of whack. We, we reverse the order. We say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. But notice what Jesus did, church. He put acceptance first. Paul would later tell the church in Romans 14, accept one another. If you've lived and you've been married for several years and you're in a good place in your marriage, but you've been through some stuff, you can probably stand up here and give a testimony of how powerful acceptance is. Have you tried to get your way with your spouse by nagging? Some are raising their hand, pointing at people next to them. 
How does that work for you? You might modify their behavior in the moment, but long-term inner transformation doesn't occur when condemnation is first and foremost. Folks, the Bible is right. It occurs when acceptance comes first. And when we accept one another, it's the first road to human flourishing. There's a central person, and the central person is Jesus Christ, and he is full of grace, and he's full of truth. The second thing I want to share with you is a core conviction. I think we have 1 Corinthians chapter 15 up in verses 3 and 4. It says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Here's my point with sharing this verse that's an Easter passage. This is what really matters and I have a dream for our church. I have a dream for our church that we could really focus on what really matters. And what's more important than Christ dying for your sins, which I have and which you have, and he was raised according to the scriptures. That to me, I'm sort of thinking about could be really a core conviction a core passage to say, this is what really, really, really matters. And everything else, and I'm not saying there aren't important things, but everything else is just peripheral to what is at the center of it all. This week, I sat in a circle with 15 men. And I said, you guys know what I'm gonna do on Sunday. What makes you nervous? What makes you fearful? Let's, let's, let's talk about this. And honestly, one of the men said to me, he goes, man, I don't see anything wrong with two people loving each other, no matter who they are. Now let me ask you, can I, well I'm not gonna ask you, I'm just gonna tell you. That guy is my brother. He's my brother in Christ. He's a, he's a fellow Christian. We don't have to see eye to eye in everything, right? But what we need to do as a church in order to be healthy is focus on what really, really, really matters. And I would say to you, Christ dying for our sins and being raised according to the scriptures is really, really what matters. The third thing I would share beyond a central person and a core conviction is what I want to call an important posture. Uh, write this passage down, Isaiah 66, 2. It says, this is the one to who I look for. Who's speaking here? God through the prophet Isaiah. God is looking for someone. That makes me curious. Hey, God, who are you looking for? He's looking for someone who's humble and of contrite spirit and who trembles at his words. As one who teaches the Bible, all of it, I really hope that you would join with me in learning to tremble at God's word. You see, when we get into this this morning, and when you study and think about it later, what really matters is the lordship of Christ. Are you putting yourself above him? Are you putting yourself below him, wanting to learn from him what he says and trembling at God's word? A a central person, a core conviction, and an important posture for us. With that kind of being our fallback, that being our bedrock, I want to give you four important points today as we answer the question, what's the big deal about homosexuality and gay marriage? Here's the first one of the four that I give you. God is grieved over the pain and mistreatment of the LGBT people. God, whose own son was mocked and mistreated, was wrongly accused, 
spat upon, had nails driven his hand, was crucified, has a heart for those who also are mocked and mistreated and ostracized and left out. Through the years, I've thought about my own life this week, looking back through the years, and I know there's been times when I have wrongly referred to an effeminate man as a fag or a queer or as a homo. And for that, I'm deeply ashamed. Also, I've referenced before a a masculine woman as a butch or a dyke. Only a few years ago, sorry to bring you into this sermon, Gary, but only a few years ago, Gary and I knew we needed some furniture for Fondren Church when we were at Dooling Hall. We had the children's area in my office and a conference room and a coffee shop. And we drove to Atlanta to Buckhead. We went shopping in Atlanta. And when we came back, I remember later, we were around several friends and a couple of friends said, hey, two guys driving to Buckhead, going shopping for furniture. And there were some comments made insinuating and there was laughter. And I didn't realize it in a room of about 12 people that there was one person who had a proclivity to same-sex attraction. He didn't confront me or talk about it or or share how that hurt him, but I look back on that and I think I'm deeply ashamed at some of the things that I've said because it doesn't honor the one who I follow. The one we follow said this in Matthew 19, 19. Everybody in the room knows this. Say it, church. Love your neighbor as yourself. And at Fondra Church, I want to say to you, there are no prerequisites or asterisks on this verse. Jesus doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself unless they're gay. And I want to say to you, I stand on the authority of the Bible this morning when I tell you that any time, any place, anywhere, when anyone goes unloved, it grieves the heart of God. We all know uh, on Palm Sunday, we were greeted. If you came to church that day, you were greeted with abortion protesters. They had their posters and their placards and their signs, and some of you engaged in conversation with them. I watched you from that window up there. And similarly, in our day, you see people that have posters that say, God hates facts. And I ask you this morning, where do people get that kind of stuff? Because God loves everybody. Jesus was a scandalous person. Do you know that? Jesus died for sinners and he dined with sinners. And when he dined with sinners, he offended the religious crowd. It was scandalous to them. And if loving everybody who's created in the image of God is a scandal, then put me in the headlines of the tabloids. Because I want to be known and I want to lead a church that will love everybody. You say, how do you love someone that I disagree with? My wife and I disagree often and we love each other. Moreover, I am friends with people who are Democrats, Ole Miss fans, and cat owners. (laughs) We've gotta learn. We've gotta learn that God's love is for everybody. Don't you wanna be a church that doesn't have to put a prerequisite or a fine print asterisk next to Matthew 19, 19 or John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, unless of course you're gay. 
God is grieved over the mistreatment of LGBT people. Secondly, I want to say to you, God is smarter than we are in understanding the complex dynamics that lead to same-sex attraction. Let me tell you the truth this morning, verified by every field of study. You and I, we can choose our behavior, but we can't choose who we're attracted to. If you're straight, you're attracted to, to the opposite sex, but you're not attracted to everyone of the opposite sex. We, we, can't, we can't determine everything about us. So what is it? They're very, very smart people who spend a lot of time studying this. But there are complex dynamics involved in this. There's three, three conversations or three critical components that come up in the conversation when people are discussing, when the smart people are discussing what are the complex dynamics that lead to same-sex attraction. The first is circumstances. For, for some, truth bears this out, that there are some who, uh, because of dysfunctional or destructive forces at home, maybe dad is distant or absent or raging or abusive, maybe mom is smothering or shaming or controlling or emotionally crippled. That could lead some people down this path or have a greater uh, desire there, but that's certainly not true for everybody. Do you know any heterosexual folks who grew up in that environment? So circumstances are one thing that come into play. Another thing that comes into play is early sexual experiences. We now have a counselor on duty. I've been a pastor for uh, more than two decades. And some of you probably like me know that when someone sits down with you and lets down their guard and shares with you a part of their story, you know that for some, they've been traumatized by an early childhood or teenage sexual experience. Mom's new boyfriend, a neighbor, a babysitter, a friend, a relative, a teacher. I have one gay friend who told me about uh, a youth pastor that repeatedly violated him sexually. That combined with very dark and destructive forces at home have led him into a, a tailspin. He, it's followed him. This inner turmoil has followed him well into his 50s. A third piece of this complex puzzle that people talk about when they talk about what leads to the dynamics of same-sex attraction is the idea of genetics. And let me just say, stepping back to the side here, I'm a pastor, okay? Just remember, I'm a pastor, not a content expert on this. But like you, I can read, and I wanna to go to the best sources, the most reliable data from the most reputable sources. Some of the smartest people in the world have for many, many years now been studying this idea. They, they've studied DNA and fingerprinting and brain function and mapping and form and structure. They've studied humans and rats and rams and fruit flies and rats and mice and monkeys. And it gets to the age old question. They wanna help us answer the age old question. Is someone born gay? Or do they become that way? And do you know the answer? 
The answer is the jury's still out. The answer is that the research is not conclusive. Now, if you have gay friends or you struggle with same-sex attraction yourself, you know some of the pain, some of the isolation, some of the suffering that could be involved. And it leads many, if not most today, to conclude that being gay is, is not a choice. That who would sign up for this? In fact, I know two people that I talked to uh, this week would say, man, I would pull a switch if I could to change this. And I wanna go back and say, God is smarter than us. It's likely that they will, that the researchers, the scientists will discover a genetic link to this. But as a believer of the Bible, one who believes, we can talk about this more, but one who believes that the Bible and science do not contradict itself, themselves. There's, there's, there's no incompatibility between the Bible and science. The Bible, I say it often, is not a book of science, but when it speaks scientifically, it's accurate. It's even had forethought and insight that is astounding if you think about it, relative to creation, the universe, to what happens with the seasons, to what happens in the body, soul, and spirit. Here's what I take comfort in. By the way, we don't, let me say this as sort of a balance. We don't understand all the complex dynamics that go into um, same-sex attraction, but heck, we don't understand all the complex dynamics that go into opposite-sex attraction. Solomon, who struggled greatly with heterosexual sin, said in Proverbs chapter 30, there are four things I cannot understand. The way a snake slithers on a rock, the way an eagle soars in flight, the way a ship sails on a sea, the way of a man with a woman. Can I just say amen to that? But I take, listen to me, I take great comfort and whatever truth comes out through research, I welcome that. As a follower of Jesus, I welcome that. There's, there's absolutely no threat there. I take great comfort in Psalm 147 and verse five. When I say God is smarter than us, here's what the scripture says, how great is our Lord. His power is absolute. His understanding is beyond comprehension. The third thing this morning that I wanna share with you is God expects his followers to speak the truth in love. We're called to be kind, to be compassionate, to be courageous. Jeff Hightower and I went over last week on Thursday and Friday to be involved in LeaderCast. We drove over to Atlanta, to Gwinnett County Civic Center, and we, we heard some, uh, just some powerful speakers all day last Friday. Andy Stanley, Rudy Giuliani, Peyton Manning. We heard from a Navy SEAL, remarkable story. We heard from an interview from a 17-year-old girl, the Middle Eastern girl, who is the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner ever. She sat down and was interviewed by Henry Cloud. She was shot in the head by the Taliban as a 10-year-old girl. They all spoke to us, to thousands of people gathered there and many more um, through the internet. They talked to us about bravery, about being brave. And I would say to you that there's a place for the Christian to be brave and to be courageous. Not, not wrongly bold, not brazen, not loud and obnoxious, but to be courageous. And I would say to you this morning, as your pastor and as the leader of Fondren Church, we believe the Bible. 
We're, we're not following after public opinion polls, social research. We're, we don't want to believe everything just because it's popular or chic or avant-garde. There are times you have to be courageous. And so I want to ask you this morning, what does the Bible say about this issue? What does it really say? And let me say this, people of the LGBT community don't need us to lecture them or look down on them or quote verses to them. Everyone that I know that friends of mine and people that I've talked to that aren't friends, I've just had an opportunity to talk to, they know these verses. But what I wanna say to you is what God says about his original best design for the gift he gives of sexuality. And he uses the words in the beginning. In the beginning, God had a perfect design. And marriage was designed at its optimal, in its best, he placed a premium on a man and a woman loving each other, a unity of compliments. His design was that two people that were different would learn to be one and would be a blessing to a watching world. Here's what is said in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse four. Stay on good terms with each other, held together by love. Be ready with a meal or, or bed when it's needed. Why some have extended hospitality to angels. Uh, let's, let's skip on down. Look on victims of abuse as if what happened to them had happened to you. Here's the, here's the part. Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between what? Wife and husband. God draws a fine line against casual and illicit sex. While what I'm saying does not want to be heard necessarily by the gay and homosexual community. Frankly, it doesn't want to be heard by the heterosexual community as well. I mean, let me ask you, are we getting it right on sex today? When, while there's still a chain of restaurants called Hooters, I think we've got some progress that needs to be made, right? While our songs have lyrics like bitches and hoes in them. I've shared with you before that not believers, this isn't a religious survey, but evidence has shown that women that come out of the sex industry, strippers, prostitutes, those in pornography, they have the, po the same post-traumatic stress-related disorders as soldiers coming home from war. We can't say, can we, that we're animals, that this is just nerve endings and biological impulses. You see, God has created us to live with integrity. To have a heart at peace, it says in Proverbs, gives strength to the bones. You and I are only healthy when we're living as whole beings and we're doing things according to God's plan and God's design. I was reading this week about a woman who started yoga in a small Midwestern town. And she said that she was just fascinated by the number of women who signed up, who participated. And she said there was a really interesting uh, development, that the women who were, were doing this, uh, most of them for the first time, during the yogas, they got into form and began to learn that they began weeping. They were weeping during the yoga and, and, and couldn't stop weeping. And this instructor, yoga instructor, was getting to know some of these women and she said, her, her, she had a very um, interesting theory as to why this was happening. These women for the first time were hearing that their bodies were healthy and good and proper and to respect them and have care for their body as a sacred gift. It was new to them. 
You see, we're not just bodies, we're bodies and souls. And when sex is treated casually and illicitly, we, what we think brings us freedom, and let me preach what all the scripture says. The scripture says to us that there is pleasure in sex for a season. You can go to Vegas or anywhere and hook up with some prostitutes. You can, as many men do, watch the glow of a computer screen and watch pornography and drop your pants and play with yourself. There could be some pleasure for just a moment that many of us engage in repeatedly. Though pleasure for a moment, is it the best way? Is it the healthiest expression? When we're out visiting Susan's family, they have a wonderful view of the LA Basin. Used to, they've moved. And we would enjoy this view. And I remember one particular season we were out there, there were fires raging in Malibu. And from their home in the Palos Verdes Peninsula, we could look from a distance and see it. And guess what? One night we were having a bonfire and we were out in the back and we had a fire and we were gathered around and there was a fire in its place and it was beautiful. It was stimulating conversation and fellowship and love and unity. But you look across the way and you think, man, there are trucks and helicopters and men and women fighting that fire and it is destroying homes and livestock and potentially people and it's dangerous and this morning what I would say to you is there's a fire and there's a fire and this fire was good because what it was in its place it was in its place and that fire wasn't in its place and it was destructive Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 19 verses 4 to 6 haven't you read he replied when he was asked by the way trying to be tricked haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Last night, I stood here in front of Katie and Marcus and I stood with an Episcopal priest and we shared, we wore robes. He was much more natural in his robe than I was in mine. And he shared this very idea, what God has joined together. Don't, don't let anybody put us under. God's places a premium on a man who is different than a woman, not just propagating the species, but he says this unity of compliments is God's best way. It's his best desire for you and I. And anything outside of that doesn't give us full peace. It doesn't lead to the human flourishing that God intends. There are, I want to tell you, eight to 10 verses in all the Bible. Now, by the way, there's 3,103 verses in all the scripture, which man put there later. God didn't put that in there, man did. 3,103 verses in the scripture and eight to 10 of them speak about homosexuality. And let me be honest, it speaks negatively, explicitly negatively about homosexuality. In Romans chapter one, Paul talks about homosexuality being a deviation from God's intended norm. Some believers, including many pastors, including some of you that I've talked to that have sent me leaks, that have engaged in dialogue, believe differently than I believe. Now, I feel like I've got a couple of tools in my belt that you may not have, but I, I think that some people are coming to this text and they're wanting to explain it away. They're wanting to say, well, Paul was talking about prostitution or pedophilia. This is what he was talking about, relationships that are not monogamous. But Paul uses two Greek words here, malakoi and arsenokoitai. Malakoi means effeminate or soft. Arsenokoitai means men who lay down and sleep with men. 
Some people who try to explain that away or be creative with this, not being negative about the act, the sex act of homosexuality, say that, that uh, they, they're very creative there or that there wasn't the existence of that in the culture. But let me say there's a book by Thomas Hubbard. It's a 550-page volume. Thomas is not a Christian. It's a 558-page volume. It's the definitive volume uh, on homosexuality in the ancient Greek and Roman world. There were pottery shards that had men um, looking, staring into each other's eyes and touching each other's genitalia. Uh, there, there are examples, of, uh, clear examples, of man-boy love being very common in the Roman army. Nero, who was the emperor at the time of Paul, dressed as a woman. When he married his wife, he dressed up like a woman. Later, he married a 12-year-old boy named Sporus, who he dressed like a woman and called her lady. When Paul wrote Romans 1, homosexuality was in the culture. It was happening. It, was, it existed. It was, it was common. I believe what the Bible teaches I believe that homosexuality is a sin. But I want to say to you, I don't believe it's the sin. I don't believe it's the sin. Some of you have asked me, two or three of you have asked me in the four years, when are you going to preach against homosexuality? And I thought, why ask me about homosexuality? Why there? Why not say obesity? Look at Proverbs chapter 23 and verse two. He talks about when you sit down with the king or ruler and there's a lot of food in front of you. He says, and put a knife to your throat if you're given to glutton. If you look at the Center for Disease and Control and Prevention, you'll see that there's some 79.8 million Americans that struggle with this problem. You'll see that it costs uh, the average person about $1,500 a year. Uh, you see that it kills people, that there are preventable diseases related to obesity and gluttony. Here's what I want to say to you. Homosexuality doesn't send anybody to hell. Just as heterosexuality doesn't get anybody to heaven. Are you with me? And so do I believe what the Bible teaches, I believe God intends a man and a woman in marriage. Some people, or I would say all people can control their behavior. Not all people can control who they are attracted to. And we believe a lie, we believe a myth. I know one, fr one friend, he's a good friend of mine, he's never been married, he's not attracted to the opposite sex, he's not attracted to the same sex. All of his friends, it appears, are of the same sex, but he's never had sexual relations. As we're getting to know each other, we're talking about this whole idea of the myth of sex and the myth of completeness in marriage. There are many sins and many sexual sins. And I believe that homosexuality is one of them, but it's not the sin. Look with me as we round toward home at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. And I'm going to read this out loud. You're already cheating. Wait a second, I'm gonna read this out loud and I want you to look and see if you're on this list, okay? And I'm gonna do the same thing. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom 
of God. That verse has been used to beat people up. And can I tell you, as I said at the beginning, that grieves the heart of God. Are you on the list? Wrongdoers? Any wrongdoers? Anybody not ever done any wrong? Raise your hand. Jesus, we want to welcome you to Fondren Church this morning. (laughs) Stand up. We're honored that you would come in bodily form. Sexually immoral. Anybody ever pulled a Brett Favre and sent naked pictures of yourself to someone who's not your wife? Have fun in marriage. Have a password. How about greedy? How about, how about, how about uh, slanders? Ever been to a women's Bible study? <laughs> Prayer time is real interesting, isn't it? I'm just saying. Very interesting there. We've been taught, our culture's teaching us to believe a lie. That, that we only have two choices in this. Affirmation or alienation? And I say no. I say Jesus teaches us a different way and a better way, and he invites us into what I want to call the messy middle. You see, if if the verse stopped at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, we're, we're in trouble, aren't we? Because sin is destructive. Sin damages, sin alienates, and sin sends us away from God. But look at the grace of verse 11. And that is, listen, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You were, you were. And the scripture says, because of what Jesus has done, you can be washed. You see it a lot, I've seen it for a lot of years. You walk by a dirty car, a dirty automobile, and somebody, a friend or family member, writes in their dirt on the back windshield, wash me. And I, I, I always laugh, every time. If I see it today in the parking lot, I'm gonna laugh. I, just, I chuckle a little bit, I don't fall over and hold my sides, but I, I think it's funny. I think it's funny because someone, they didn't say, wash your car. They wrote, they animated your car, right? It's just kind of funny. Your car, basically your car is saying, help me, help me. I'm dirty, clean me, right? And I think that's our lives. I, I think your life is dirty and so is mine. And I think we, we cry out to be washed. And that's what Jesus does for us. He washes and he sanctifies and he justifies. And I'm so glad that Jesus does that for me. Because all of my, and let me just say, that list from verse nine and 10, I wanna tell you, I'm on the list. I'm not gonna tell you where I am on the list, but I'm on the list. We don't have to believe the lie of affirmation or alienation. We're called to be a loving community We're called to love and accept people. And then let Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, do his work in his time with people. Now today, this is so heavy and so weighty and our time is limited, there's no way we can just end without a whole bunch of other questions. And my email address is robert.green, this isn't a joke, it's robert.green at fondrenchurch.com and we'll pick a forum sometime soon 
to respond specifically to questions you may have. My friend Lee Smith, who's more of a content expert when it comes to washing, justifying, sanctifying, and, and living with this uh, reality and this uh, same-sex attraction, uh, we may have him here or in another forum to help us answer some of these questions. I ask that God would unite us, as I said at the outset, around a central person, the person of Jesus Christ, who came from the fathers full of grace and truth, and that we would have a core conviction that what really, really, really matters is the gospel, and that we would all be honest about our sin and how we need a savior, and that we would have an important posture to tremble at his word. This ultimately to me comes down to a lordship issue. Are we willing to submit and listen to what God has for us? I wanna ask you this morning to bow and to pray with me. Our Father, together we pray. Lord, I would pray Jesus, that you would, as you call us to love and to serve, that you would move us, that you would move us to love and to accept and to unite and to find common ground. And Lord, I pray for our church and I pray for families, to all who had the courage today to be here and to listen, especially those of us in the room who struggle in this area in a very personal way. God, I thank you for them. And the friendships you give us. And Lord, I pray we wouldn't draw lines in the sand and build walls, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to build bridges. And Lord, move toward love. And God, I pray that Fondren Church would be a church, a courageous church, and a bold church. And God, I pray that you would allow us to be a church who loves everyone. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would realize this isn't just out there. It's in here. And Lord, I pray that you would grow us in ways. And if anybody, Lord, is, is angry or put off, God, I pray for you to soften them and for the dialogue to really begin. God, I thank you that you have visited us in the person of Jesus. And your truth points at ways in all of us where we miss the mark. And God, it picks us up and lifts us up and loves us through it all. God, I would pray for greater unity and love that we, don't, we would see how we can love each other and call to love each other even when we disagree. Remind us of what really matters. In Jesus we pray, amen. Church, would you stand? We're gonna sing and a few of us will be down front.
We'd love the opportunity to pray for you. One of our very own, Scott and Deborah White, are leaving uh, tomorrow, heading to Cambodia to serve over there. Scott's one of the professors at Bellhaven, his wife Deborah. We love them. They'll be in Cambodia all summer, uh, ministering there with some other folks, some nationals there, and doing good work. And Fondren Church is a part of that. We love and appreciate them. Some of our elders prayed over them before the service. I want you to be mindful of them as, as they go. We would love the opportunity to pray uh, for anybody today, or if you just feel really bad for me being hot under the spotlight, you can come pray for me as we stand and as we sing. You come if we can pray for you.